electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. The House has a new speaker, but as the clock is ticking on a potential government shutdown again, will Congress be able to come together to get anything done? The U.S. government will run out of funds in less than three weeks, and another stopgap funding bill is likely. You know, I thought that felt like a little detailed about the machinations of Washington. Welcome to the special edition of The Exchange and Power Lunch, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans alongside Tyler Matheson. Uh, welcome, everybody. And as we enter this final 60-minute countdown to the central bank's decision on interest rates, a pause once again expected today. But it's Jay Powell's comments that investors will be paying close attention to. Less what they do, more what they say. And as always, we've got team coverage from the stock market to the bond market to the economy and how rising rates will impact the consumer. Plus, the view from Congress, Representative Brad Sherman, Senator John Kennedy, will join us to talk about the legislative challenge ahead and much more this as the clock and once again started ticking towards that potential government showdown. A lot of moving pieces for the markets today. Here's a quick glance at the Dow up 25 points pre-fed, the S&P up a third of a percent, the Nasdaq up half a percent. Lower rates have a lot to do with the complex you're seeing so far. We had economic data that other than jolts was largely on the dovish end of things. The Treasury's refunding announcement, same kind of deal. We'll dig more into that later. Look across bond yields where you can see the 10-year note was below 480, now 480. The two-year look just over five, uh, and the 30-year is now below five, 4.985%. Well, he was here earlier in the morning, but now he has gone over to the Federal Reserve. Let's kick things off with Steve Leisman. Hi, Steve. Hey, good afternoon, Tyler. Ahead of the Fed meeting, the 10-year yield is becoming a thing. Two steps down. The first one came on a somewhat better than expected Treasury announcement on refunding the debt and another on the economic data, especially the weak ISM and, of course, a weaker ADP payroll report. Here's how the Treasury responded to all of it. First leg down in the morning with that Treasury refunding, where they leaned a little bit more towards the shorter end of the coupons and also suggested that there was only one more quarter of increases in coupons to come. And then the other leg down came at 10 o'clock with the ISMs coming out and some of the other data. But here's how we go into the meeting. Here's the setup. The probability for rate hikes in upcoming meetings, of course, this one is zero, and for upcoming meetings is very, very slim. Just 20% for December and around 30% for January. But that's a big change from the last meeting when there was roughly an even chance of a December hike. Now you can see, as we, as we saw, just 21% down from 46%. So the big question for Powell is, to two pauses, assuming we get one now, equal to hold. Possible answers from Powell that could affect the market. He says, yes, the Fed is on an extended hold, which he's not going to say, but if he did, that'd be a big rallying point. More likely, he says, maybe meetings are live, but we continue to be in a wait-and-see mode. Then there's the idea of the most hawkish answer. He'll say, no, the committee continues to forecast a second hike. The Fed needs to do more. Don't expect that. Looking more for the maybe, keeping the Fed on edge. I think there's a chance Fed Chair Powell tries to redirect the market towards the greater possibility of another hike. The market may be close to deciding that, hey, whatever Powell says, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And Steve, to what extent is all of this overshadowed by what's happening on the supply side of things with bond yields? With the Treasury's announcement this morning, and really its announcements going back to Monday, a little bit lighter issuance than expected, and that's being taken as a positive. It is interesting. Um, I don't remember a time when Treasury issuance 
you know, basically was more important than what the Fed may or may not say. You remember in August with that announcement, it seriously moved the market uh, coming after the Fitch downgrade and then the surprise on the coupons on, on the long end of the Treasury market. And then again, coming uh, this morning a little bit lighter. And also the idea, Kelly, that they're not going to go so much further in terms of increasing coupons into the third quarter. So uh, th- there are the, the bullet points there. Uh, maybe a little bit lighter on that 112 in terms of the total uh, amount that's going to come to auction. But I think the more important point was the idea that there's only one more quarter of increases left. We'll see if they hold to that. But you're right. The market is very focused on these numbers from here on out. I don't think they go away. All right, Steve, for now, thank you. We'll see you soon, our Steve Leisman. Now, about that strong third quarter GDP number and the still tight labor market, will it force the Fed to raise interest rates again today, or will they pause and let the bond market do the work for them, so to speak. Let's have that discussion with our special Fed panel. Here with us in Washington, D.C. is longtime Fed watcher Paul McCulley. Welcome to you. Former chief economist at PIMCO, currently adjunct professor at Georgetown McDonough School of Business. Also with us here, Subhaja Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at Society General. And Nancy Tangler is CEO and chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome to all of you. Paul, I'll start with you. What are your expectations and how do you think the market setup looks? I think Chair Powell is going to say the Fed's in a good place. There's lots of details about this whole thing, but the general conclusion is that the Fed's in a good place. They're restrictive, unambiguously restrictive. The labor market is moderating. The path towards a soft landing or a soft normalization is proceeding apace. I think the Fed's in a very good place. I think he will say that. I think, as Steve was noting, he will also note that if they're not in the perfect place, it will be because they need to move up a little bit more. But I don't think he's going to show any urgency whatsoever about getting off the good place and embrace the notion that the market is not fighting him anymore. The market's doing some of his work. Exactly. They've been fighting him for the last 18 months. We inverted the curve over a year ago. And the market not fighting the Fed makes the Fed's job easier. He's not going to say, we're done. But he might (laughs) use code that says, we're done. What would those code words be? There's a line in the statement that we've had for the last seven, eight months that he could change a little bit when effectively he says that, you know, we'll be, as we evaluate the need to tighten some more, we'll be looking at this, this, and this. Uh, But, you know, the presumption is the next move would be a tighten. So in the statement, he could effectively soften that presumption that the next move will still be in the up direction. Um, Words like sufficiently restrictive. Oh, man, that's the big phrase. And I don't think they will say that in the statement. But uh, dollars to donuts, he's going to get asked that at the press conference. (laughs) Sir, are you sufficiently restrictive? And it's going to be an interesting to see how he handles that question. But I doubt that they would say that. Yeah. Very much yeah. doubt they okay. would say that. Okay. He certainly, Subhadra, has a track record, or the Fed does, of the market kind of taking the initial decision in stride. And then to Paul's point, seeing more of the sell-off or the risk-off move happen during uh, the chair's comments at those press conferences. Yeah, we don't really expect much uh, of a change in the statement. I think you're probably going to hear uh, Chair Powell uh, talk about proceeding carefully from here on. But for the most part, I think following on the uh, heels of the ECB as well as the Bank of Canada, 
the focus is going to be on uh, delivering a hawkish pause and keeping their options open to hike more if needed. Um, I mean, we've uh, had very strong data that thus far. Today's data, of course, was a little bit weak. Manufacturing has been on the weaker side. Employment remains relatively strong. And inflation is coming down ever so gradually towards, uh, you know, perhaps 3% by the end of, end of the year and 2.5% by the middle of, of, of next year. In that sort of context, uh, I think it's a little too soon for the Fed to really guide the markets towards any sort of a pause, even though the rise in long-end yields is already doing the work for them. Subhadra, let me just jump on that ISM manufacturing report, which wasn't supposed to be the scene stealer today, but it was really bad. It felt, you know, it had been improving the last couple of months. We thought maybe it would go back into expansion territory above 50. Then it fell all the way back to 46. These kinds of readings are historically consistent with a recession, aren't they? I mean, what shouldn't we be making more of this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the uh, if, if you ask me, if you look at the data and aggregate, ISM uh, manufacturing has been weak for a while now. So we've been in a manufacturing recession for quite some time now. It's a question of when this is going to spill over to the services side and if the and when the consumer, if anything, is going to is going to be retrenching from the from the spending, uh, you know, splurge that they've had during the summer months. And I think that that's going to come in the fourth quarter because the consumer is starting to come under an increasing amount of pressure. Uh, student loan moratoriums expiring as well as, um, you know, the uh, you know higher gas prices are all eating into disposable income. So I think the fourth quarter, you're going to start seeing the consumer start to pull back. Hmm. So, Nancy, notwithstanding those numbers on manufacturing, the economy has been remarkably resilient. So why has the economy been as resilient as it has been in the face of a Fed that has been very persistent in raising interest rates? Why hasn't it slowed more? Yeah, Tyler, I mean, I think this is the first time in my career where we've had a, a Fed and fiscal policy at odds. You've got the federal government spending a tremendous amount of money and the fiscal thrust continues. And so that's provided uh, economic growth that uh, may be the wrong way, but none, economic growth nonetheless. And then I would also argue that although the consumer may indeed pull back at the low end, what in my experience over the last four decades is that uh, individuals spend, U.S. consumers spend out of net worth. We are at pre-pand, I mean, we are above pre-pandemic highs. So we're at 100 and call it 75 trillion in net worth. Half of that almost is the baby boomers at 77 trillion. So these, this is a cohort that for the most part doesn't have mortgages and they have time and they're spending. And I think that surprised a lot of investors. Um, happily, we've been increasing our exposure to consumer discretionary, but of course the trick is to know when to decrease it. Uh, I think it continues for a while, um, sort of defying those who, who think we may pull back. I thought Nancy's comparison with the 1990s there, too, was interesting. Paul, what would you say about all of that? The baby boom is doing incredibly well. I very much agree with her uh, on that. Uh, said the baby boomer. Said the baby boomer, talking <laughs> to, to, to another baby, baby boomer. boomer. <laughs> uh, but, but I think in a, in a more uh, narrow sense is that the household sector and the corporate sector locked in generationally low interest rates in 20 and 21 are put differently. They shorted the bond market. 
the household sector shorted the bond market. Uh, so essentially, they're sitting there, you know, with mortgages that have a market value of 75 cents on the dollar. So they really haven't been bitten by what the Fed's doing. Now, for the new generation. And their liquidity pic picture is much better than absolutely, it would otherwise be. Absolutely. So essentially, the bite of monetary policy is for the bottom half of the income distribution and for the younger half of the distribution. And I think that is a key homes. reason the economy has been so strong is the household sector sitting in a short position in bonds effectively, or put differently, the household sector has got a rent control department. <laughs> <laughs> Very well put. Subhadra, what would you add to that, especially as we turn our attention to the details of this decision? And what do the projections say about how likely the Fed is to move at all from here in terms of hiking going forward? And if not, when that first cut might be? Yeah, no, I think uh, we believe that the Fed is done, um, you know, especially given how much long-end yields have risen. Uh, we believe that the long-end rising, as much as it has, has really effectively delivered uh, a 25 or even a 50 basis point rate hike. So it's a matter of uh, when, it, it's not a matter of if the, the economy is going to, to slow down. But to Paul's point, you know, for sure, delinquency rates are rising in credit cards as well as in auto loans for the lower uh, income cohorts as well as the younger uh, population of the of the uh, of the of the uh, U.S. consumer, uh, and you know, given that sort of haves and have-nots economy, I think the Fed is going to really proceed carefully from here on, uh, and um, especially when it comes to to uh, to hikes. And, and as Steve was pointing out earlier, the market's not really priced for the Fed to hike again, uh, you know, in the next meeting or even the next couple of meetings. And the market, if anything, is starting to price in more cuts for next year. So, Nancy, you say that technology is the new defense. These, are, these names are the new defensive names. Why do you say that? And am I going to need defense over the next year? Well, Tyler, I mean, I think the economy is definitely slowing, um, and and that is uh, a time when you want to own reliable earners. Remember, we talked about last October, we were adding technology names back into our portfolio, um, but also they've been they've they've held up pretty well this year. And if you look at some of the names we like, like a service now, they beat beat and raised this last quarter just as they did last year, by the way. They got punished in the near term. That's when you want to take advantage of, um, you know, the price of the stock being on sale and, and step in and add to your holdings because the secular tailwind behind technology, I mean, look at the JOLTS numbers. We've got, we've got a lack of labor. And historically, when we've had a tight labor market, uh, spending on technology went up and uh, the technology stocks rose. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, as an analog to the 90s, which is my thesis. Uh, you know, we, we were in an environment that was very similar. We had a recession. We had a geopolitical shock. We had a war. We had higher interest rates. They hovered above between five and eight percent, four and eight percent, and average five to six percent the whole decade. Uh, and we had inflation above three percent. Yet the Nasdaq was up 800 percent. Now, we know what followed that, but I, I think we're in a different position NASDAQ was up 800% during that decade, uh, said the baby boomer, and uh, all the other, the other two indices were up over 400%. Uh, so 800%, uh, 400%, 
I think this is similar. I think stocks can continue to perform. Companies can continue to deliver earnings in a higher rate regime. Uh, and this is really not out of line with those of us who have. Um, and in fact, I think Paul and I worked together in the 90s. But those of us who who uh, have been at this for a long time know that, that you can make money in stocks and in technology, which have historically been long duration, but are now companies that are providing more defensive posture in a slowing economic environment. And we haven't even gotten to the geopolitical situation around no. the world yet. That's for another part so of today's much. conversation, because that is an issue uh, that is lurking there one way or another. It's going to affect psyches and investments uh, around the globe. But thank you. Anyhow, Subhadra, thank you very much. Nancy Tengler, thank you. And Paul, you're going to be around for a while. Stay be put. Back. Sounds be good. Back. We're just getting started on the CNBC special edition of the Exchange and Power Lunch. Coming up, an inside look at the rising shutdown risk on Capitol Hill. We'll speak with Democratic Representative Brad Sherman about that and more after the break. Plus, will the housing market be the biggest casualty of higher rates? We'll look at the Fed's impact on the mortgage market and prospective home buyers. We're also tracking what's on the agenda in Washington with Republican Senator John Kennedy and Strategist Partner Dan Clifton. He'll tell us how to position for pretty much any policy scenario. Quick look at markets. Dow High was up 228. We're only up 70 right now. It's the underperformer of the major three, but the small cap Russell 2000 once again uh, continues to be the laggard. It's down half a percent. The 10-year note hovering around 481. We're back after this. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The House has a new speaker, but as the clock ticks down on a potential government showdown again mid-month, uh, this as funding for Ukraine and Israel could hit a snag over its hit to the deficit. Joining us now to discuss that issue and more, his view on the Fed, the economy, is Representative Brad Sherman. He also sits on the House Financial Services Committee as well as the Foreign Affairs Committee. Welcome back, Congressman. Good to be with you, Tom. Very, very good to have you here. Let's start with your view of the American economy. It is quite hot, actually. Actually, if you looked at the last quarter, 4.9% GDP growth, uh, you represent a district. I don't worry too much about the folks in your district, Bel Air, Brentwood, Malibu. I'm sure things are doing okay there. Canoga but how Park, do you see so the much. U.S. economy? Uh, most of my folks are in the San Fernando Valley, which is not exactly the same. But uh, I think things are, are good. The, uh, the actor strike is a problem out our area. And... Um, uh, you know, people are not satisfied, and they're often not satisfied. Uh, prices are, are higher, and you notice it. And uh, uh, it's nice to say that wages are up, but they're only up if you happen to have gotten a raise. Let's talk about what's been going on in Congress and switch uh, gears a little bit. We didn't talk in our first segment about geopolitics, and there is plenty to talk about there. 
I guess you have a new speaker. Uh, you have a speaker who has uh, made it clear that he's not particularly in favor of funding uh, additional monies for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a package that may be put forth, maybe it already is, to help fund uh, Israel's war effort, Ukraine's war effort, and maybe border security. What's going to happen here, and how does the speaker get his caucus to come along? Well, not the way he's doing it. He's got, for the first time ever, he's going to make Israel a partisan issue. And that may be in his short-term political interest, but it's really a disaster. I mean, I've been a pro-Israel activist for 60 years. What do you mean he's making it a political issue? Well, what he's done is instead of just having us vote on foreign policy or, better, or perhaps just on aid to Israel, he's marrying with it a uh, cut to the IRS positions. That, that was only to fund that, though, to make it... Well, it neutral. doesn't fund it. CBO says it actually right, costs right. more money. But the intent was not because that was the goal, but just simply to get the package passed without increasing the deficit. I think his intent was to split and to say Democrats are voting against Israel. He's not funding it because the Congressional Budget Office says it makes it cost more. When you cut IRS positions, you cut revenue. And uh, I think it's just because every time a billionaire cheats on his taxes, a member of uh, the Republican caucus earns his wings. They really hate uh, IRS enforcement because they know that wage earners have to pay and business people have more complexity and without a, an IRS, they don't have to pay. As I understand it, the president has put forward a, a proposal that would marry aid for Ukraine and aid for Israel in, under one umbrella. Is that likely to carry? In the Senate, yes. Uh, and frankly, if it's split in the House, I think it, they both carry separately, they both carry together. Uh, I think uh, there'll be a smaller number of Republican votes for the Ukraine than for Israel, but I think uh, in general, uh, their support for meeting our international responsibilities. Do you then, just because it raises this question about the deficit, we've had all these tre treasury supply announcements and so forth, it, this isn't the time and place to probably kind of fight that battle. The, the, that aid obviously needs to happen. If it's not passed, we'll probably need more down the, down the road. But on the question of balancing this deficit, which now seems to be persistently with us, what would your ideas be on that front, or how is that going? How is that effort going to at least get started? Not a penny will be spent that the Republicans in the House don't vote for, and the Speaker doesn't vote for. And if they have ideas on how to cut uh, uh, spending, that's the place to do it. Likewise, and Republicans won't go for this. We actually need to collect revenue, and uh, some of the cuts that Trump uh, had in his first year have to be rolled back. And then you have to actually enforce taxation, particularly our enforcement on multinational uh, corporations is, is very weak. So let me just, I just want to circle back. You believe that one way or another, aid for Israel's war effort and aid for Ukraine's war effort will be passed by Congress this year? Probably, because while they each would pass together or separately on the floor of the House, it's up to Mike Johnson to determine whether we get to vote on the floor of the House. You've been an astute observer of and sometime critic of cryptocurrency. Is cryptocurrency being used to finance Hamas? Yes. Um, What's your proof? Well, Hamas solicits contributions. 
there's over they've collected over a hundred million dollars uh, not so much from donations from individuals as uh, transfers from some of uh, from Iran and, and others and crypto if it ever really becomes a currency look it's not a currency you got sandwich place downstairs from the studio you can't buy a, you can't buy a turkey sandwich there but if it ever does become a currency then it's going to be much more effective because it says right in the name cryptocurrency literally means hidden money and uh, with unhosted wallets it means the know your customer rules that apply to banking accounts can't apply Let's talk a little bit about the possibility of a, of a government shutdown. It would seem odd to me, but there's a lot of things that are odd to me, that, that a new speaker would want one of the first things to happen on his watch to be a government shutdown. Uh, is that likely to happen or not? More likely than not, we will have a shutdown. And uh, the last speaker first tried to pass a highly uh, partisan bill and couldn't pass it to just keep government going. And then the last thing uh, that, uh, 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 that Kevin did was pass a bipartisan bill just to keep the government going to the 17th of November. And that's what caused, cost cost him his speakership. Cost him his job. So yep. you expect that there will be? It's uh, 60 percenter. I'd like to think otherwise. And at the last minute, we might uh, at least be able to keep the government open uh, into December or January. But, uh, it's, Does it matter uh, to your constituents? Oh, yeah. How? Well, it matters to people watching this show. The, the SEC stops all IPOs if there's a government shutdown. And not just the IPOs for the smaller companies, but an, an awful lot of the additional offerings of stocks and bonds by some of the major companies. Uh, that's that's got to matter to people who watch this show. Congressman Sherman, always good to see you. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. Brad Sherman of California. All right, coming up, it is no secret that mortgage, mortgage rates have skyrocketed in the past couple of years as the Fed has raised rates. And our next guest says the housing market will be the biggest casualty of the Fed's higher for longer mantra. Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi joins us to make that case after the break. About 34 minutes until the Fed decision, and we're back in two of them. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to our special Fed coverage. From what you pay for your car loan to the APR on your credit card, consumers have been hit hard by rising rates. But our next guest says the biggest casualty of the Fed's rate hike cycle so far has been the housing market. Just take a look. Everyone knows the rate on the 30-year mortgage is currently just under 7.9%, nearly four points higher than the rate we saw the week before the Fed's first post-pandemic hike back in March of 2022. Here for more is Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Sandy, and on set with us is our very own Diana Olick here in Washington. Um, and Diana, I'll just start out by saying, for a lot of people, the recent uh, strength in the housing market had been encouraging. The home builder stocks are rallying. Now there seems to be some worry that's being snuffed out a little. Yeah, and that was started at the beginning of this year because rates actually dropped back a little bit in the 6% range, and people came flooding back into the market for the spring. There was more inventory coming on, and home prices had also bottomed out in January. So people thought, okay, it's more reasonable. Then when we got that 
that eight handle on the 30-year fix, and you talk about the difference between a 3% and an 8% rate, you're talking $1,000 difference on the monthly payment of a $400,000 home. Market was striking, though, to hear Paul McCauley make the point last segment that uh, it's almost as if homeowners are living in a giant rent-controlled apartment because most of them locked in super low mortgages for the life of that mortgage. The joke in my neighborhood is no one's ever moving, and so they have not directly been hit yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the uh, average the average uh, interest rate on existing mortgages is about three point five percent. So uh, that's you know obviously pretty low. A lot of uh, homeowners were uh, very aggressive in refinancing down uh, their mortgages when interest rates were uh, at rock bottom, and so they're sitting in a pretty good spot you know right now. I do think though over time you know people have to move right. Life happens. You know, you've got job change, you've got children, you've got divorce, you have death. And, is, and I think we have a lot of pent-up life out there. People aren't moving, even though increasingly the home they live isn't live in isn't exactly what they they need. It's not uh, consistent with uh, you know their change in their living circumstances. So they'll, they'll have to move. And once they start to move at these mortgage rates, even if they come down a little bit, I do think we'll see some house price declines. And we've been fortunate so far. House prices, as Diana mentioned, have not have not fallen significantly nationwide. But I think that's ultimately going to happen. You know, Diana, under normal circumstances, you kind of think, you one would kind of think, wouldn't one, that as interest rates rise, prices would stabilize or even fall to compensate for the, for the higher payment. Which is historically how it works. Which is historically how it works. Why not this time? Supply lack of supply. This is just a crazy, strange housing market. And I hate to get too, you know, clinical on you for it. But in most markets, you see that happen. But we not only were underbuilding well before the pandemic because of the Great Recession, builders still weren't up to their normal historical levels of production. Then the pandemic hits and everybody wants to move. Everyone wants to buy. And you're buying with a 3% mortgage rate. So let's all get in on home ownership. And then you have there was nothing less else to supply. do. There was nothing else to do. But go <laughs> it was buy pandemic. I was stuck in my home. I might as well have a better home. But I would also add, I'm curious for Mark, um, because he talks about people have to move, but we're seeing a lot of people now who are selling their homes and renting single-family homes. That single-family rental market is just taking off. Mark, do you think that that's going to be you know, a product of this, people who say, okay, I have to sell, but I don't want to buy at an 8% rate? Yeah, that's a strategy, uh, Diana, but I don't think that's for most people. I mean, that's, that's you know, that takes the a lot of energy. The builders think it is. Who, what's that? The builders think it is. Build for rent is huge right now. Oh, yeah, well, in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty small, right? I mean, in terms of the percent of the housing stock, it's uh, still pretty small. But you're right. I mean, it, it, that's one of the amazing things. Uh, builders, uh, others in the industry, uh, and homeowners are incredibly creative, and they'll figure try to figure out ways around actually having to drop price. But take the builders. They actually have dropped price, right? I mean, one of the ways they've kept their sales up relative to the existing market is the interest rate buy-downs, which is effectively a price cut. So they have effectively cut price, and that's one reason why they've been able to keep the sales up as high as they've been able to keep up. But at the end of the day, you know, I I don't think uh, uh, people uh, uh, renting their homes is going to be uh, it's going to stop the house price declines that will ultimately have to come. So, so let me ask both of you this. I'll start with you, Mark. What is the interest rate at which sellers will say, will start to say, "I'm ready to move. I'm going to put my house on the market," in which more supply comes on and buyers get motivated? What is that rate, and and when might we get there? Six percent. I mean, I think that feels like the kind of threshold we we've, we've had a natural experiment here over the last uh, uh, six, twelve, eighteen months. Interest rates. Have gone. Uh, they they got up to seven. They went back down to six. Now we're at eight. 
and we can you can feel it in the marketplace. You know, once you get down to six, a little bit south of six, the, the life comes back into the housing market. People start to move, activity starts to pick up, home sales begin to happen, and I think that's the kind of the number we need to see. And, and in the long run, you know, abstracting from you know the the, the, the business cycle, in the long run. Fixed mortgage rates should be somewhere between five and a half and six percent. That's kind of where we should expect what? them to be. Di, and, what's and your over under on this? What's your over under on this? I, okay. I, my, I'd go lower than six. I, okay, so I'm going one lower. Sorry, Mark. Um, John Burns from John Burns Real Estate Consulting, who covers the buildings, he says it's the five percent range, five and a half. And coincidentally, that's where the builders are buying the rates down to. They're buying down to five and a half percent. That's where buyers are getting in. So I think they need a little more than six percent, um, especially because home prices are still rising up two point six percent year over year. Yeah, the only thing I keep thinking about is Mark's comment that there's a lot of life pent up at this yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> and then after a long enough period of time, that is certainly true. Uh, guys, thank you so much. We appreciate it today. Our Diana Olick and Mark Zandi. All right, still ahead. Today marks 595 days. I know you, you've been counting, right? Every single day since the Fed enacted the first of what would be 11 consecutive rate hikes since early 22. In that time, the Dow, excuse me, the S&P is down only about 1%. What will happen if they pause today? We'll look at that and some of the biggest movers of the day after the break. Welcome back. I'm Bertha Coombs. The House of Representatives is scheduled to hold a vote today on whether to expel Congressman George Santos. The Republican admitted to lying about his background and has been indicted on federal fraud charges. Santos's New York colleagues back the resolution, but they will need at least two thirds of House lawmakers to support that effort. At least 320 foreign passport holders crossed from Gaza into Egypt during the first round of evacuations. A Palestinian official said the evacuees left Gaza today on six buses. About 500 foreigners and dual nationals have been cleared to leave the region, with more evacuations expected in the coming days. And drought at the Panama Canal is disrupting global trade. Without enough water to transport the ships through the canal, officials have had to slash the number of ships allowed to pass. Shipping experts warn the problems could get worse. This could cause shipping costs to jump, cut Panama's annual revenue, and increase greenhouse gas emissions due to longer shipping routes. Tyler, not to mention the fact that we're already seeing the impact on produce here. Have you looked at blueberries lately, like $10 a pint in some places? If yeah. you can even find them. Yeah, no, it's yeah. absolutely true. It's crazy. All right, uh, thanks, Bertha. Yields a little bit lower today, but the 10-year still hovering near multi-year highs, and that is sparking concern about the growing costs of servicing the country's debt as the government continues to spend. Here's what Duquesne's uh, Stan Druckenmiller told CNBC's Squawk Box this morning. Pre-COVID, we were spending 20 percent, the federal government was 20 percent of GDP in spending. Right. It's now 25 percent of GDP. As outlined in the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning, my father told me, if you're in a hole, stop digging, Stan. Well, that fight over spending is what has America facing the threat of a government shutdown yet again. And uh, joining us now to discuss is Senator John Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana. He serves on the committees for appropriations, budget, banking, and judiciary. Welcome back, Senator. Good to have you here. Good to be here. I, I'm going to start, if I might, with sort of the same question I asked Representative Sherman just a few mm -hmm. moments ago. From where you sit, uh, representing Louisiana, 
home of the new speaker, by the way. We'll get to that topic in just a moment. How do you grade or assess the economy? Obviously, inflation is coming down, but prices are still higher than they were two or three years ago. Uh, the economy seems to be growing nicely, 4.9% in the most recent quarter. How do you see it? I give it a D, and I'll tell a you why. A D? Yeah, I'll tell you why. I look at more than uh, GDP growth. Uh, GDP growth has been okay. Inflation has not. Um, and if you look at all of America in granting that grade, you have to consider all Americans. And many Americans, many people in my state, have to sell blood plasma in order to go to the grocery store. Yes, inflation has fallen, but we all both know that's disinflation. That just means it's going up less rapidly. Prices have not fallen. Fair Un point. Unless we have a recession, uh, a fairly serious recession, these high prices are going to be with us for the rest of our natural lives. Employment, however, is very strong by any standard. Very strong. You cannot give that a D. And, and, and if you look at if you look at history, going all the way back to the 1950s, the 10 periods of disinflation that we have had since then, um, based on history, un unemployment uh, ought to be minimum 6%, 7%. It's obviously not, and that's a good thing. But, but I think what has skewed that was the pandemic, and there was a lot of slack in the labor market that has been absorbed. But I, let me say it again, I give it a D because the economy serves the American people, not vice versa. And the American people, because of inflation, are hurting badly. And even those who have seen pay raises have not seen raises higher than the rate of inflation. So if we turn then to, you know, the orders, top orders of business in Washington, mm -hmm. uh, foreign aid, obviously one of them. We were just talking to uh, Congressman Sherman about how exactly that's going to happen. Not clear if these IRS cuts are the right way to try to offset uh, that spending. Is it important to offset that spending or just more important to get the aid out the door? Well, I'm glad to see somebody is thinking about offsetting the spending and not just borrowing more money. Look, looking at, I think, the way most Americans look at it, there are two major issues right now. They're not the only issues. Number one, the, the biggest domestic issue is inflation. And the president does not have a plan to deal with inflation. Because, but the Fed does. Because the Fed does. But you can't really get inflation to under control unless you attack it on the monetary side by, by the Fed and the fiscal side. Uh, by, by Congress. And the reason that the president doesn't have a plan for inflation is because he, it would require him to spend less. Number two, the biggest national, international issue obviously is parts of the world are on fire. And it is clear to me that uh, China, Iran, Russia are working together. Their goal is to have China dominate the Indo-Pacific and Sub-Saharan Africa, have Russia dominate Central and Eastern Europe, and have the Ayatollah in Iran dominate the Middle East. And that is not a world that is safe for America, and we have to address it. So let's talk about the question of sending military aid to Ukraine and to mm -hmm. uh, 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 Israel at the same time to fight Hamas. Do you expect that those two items will move together through Congress, move separately through Congress, and where specifically are you on sending more military aid to Ukraine, A, and 
aid to Israel? Good question, as usual. Right now, present company excluded, most members of the media on Capitol Hill are interested in talking about process because process is sexy. You know, who's mad at who? Who's up? Who's down? Who's got a leg up? Um, I'm more interested in substance. We don't know what's in this bill. We know it covers uh, Taiwan, Ukraine, Israel, the border, and a whole bunch more domestic spending. But we don't know the details. And I had a conversation. This is the bill that's come out that of, the, out of the administration. This is a supplemental. And I had a conversation with Mitch, with Senator McConnell, before I came over here. I said, Mitch, we, we got to saddle up and ride. Okay, we need some language that everybody can look at so we can look at the substance. Forget the process for a second. Okay, that's what a lot of people want to talk about. Has the House gotten the edge over the Senate? I don't care. That's not, I mean, I'm interested in the substance. But don't the dollar figures tell you the substance? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's that much in the shadows here if it's basically as described for Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine, the border. I mean, we've uh -huh. seen the dollar amount. So what's the, what's the holdup? It's how they spend the money. I've seen plenty of money go to, to presidents for border security. Well, define border security. Uh, some of them, some presidents define it as securing the border. Others defining, define it as buying more welcome mats. Now look, how they're going to spend this, how much of the money for, for Israel, for example, is going to go to uh, humanitarian aid. I'm not against helping innocent people. I want to help innocent people. But I want to know how much money Europe's putting up, how much money the Arab League's putting up, how, how much money... Uh, uh, the EU's putting up, how much money the UN is putting up. I want to see what the assurances are that the money we give for humanitarian aid doesn't go into the pockets of Hamas. Now that's just one example out of about a hundred questions I have. And again, while the process is cool to talk about, and I get it, it's important. The substance is a hell of a lot more important. I want to come back to a point of substance, and that is, do you see yourself and the majority of the Republican caucus in the Senate voting in favor of additional military aid for Ukraine? Conceptually, the answer is yes. And I say that conceptually because, Tyler, we haven't seen the details. And the, and the border security is important. It's going to impact that vote as well. You, you can talk theoretically, metaphysically, all you want to about, you know, should we, do we want Ukraine to win or Putin to win? Well, obviously, we want Ukraine to win. But it's, it's what else is in the bill and how it's all tied together. And you'd be able to work with the news. Are you both Louisianans? Yeah, now? Mike's yeah. a great guy. Are, is that you think he's, that would help? He's, he's, he, I'm delighted. He's whip smart. Um, he's uh, he, he's uh, he, uh, humble. Uh, he's consistent while being self-confident. Um, he um, but can, might, he, can he, he do, he, can he do he, president? He, can can he, 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 he does great impersonations. He does. <laughs> he does he? great impersonations. And let me tell you something. He's a nice guy. If you don't like Mike Johnson, you don't like border collies or golden retrievers. He's just a really nice guy. Can he do business with President Biden and vice versa? Uh, I don't know about President Biden. It's not just President Biden. It's his people. If I were Joe Biden, what I'd do on this bill, I'd, I'd help negotiate a, a, a border security bill. And I would, if I were President Biden, and after I did that, I would bear hug it and, and French kiss it. All right. I would say, because he's in trouble on the border. He needs 
to show the American people that he doesn't believe in open borders. But I don't know what the White House will do. All right. All right. We have to leave it there. Senator, always always enjoy Could it. Could I say French kiss on my hair? I think you, okay. you, you did, and we're happy it's you did. It's too late now. Uh, yeah, all right. Thank you, Senator John Kennedy, okay. Louisiana. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let's get a quick check on stocks, which are losing some steam ahead of the Fed decision top of the hour. Dom Chu has a closer look. Dom? Right in between the trading range, the S&Ps, Kelly up about one-third of 1%, 4206. 42.43 is that 200-day moving average. Watch that. The Dow Industrial is up about one-tenth of 1%. One the S&P 500, again, up one-third of 1%. One and the Nasdaq up one-half of 1%. One Check out 10-year yields right now. We are still below that 5% level. We ticked just above that. Remember, at the cycle highs right now, 4.812% there. Check out the bank stocks as well. They're always in focus on a Fed interest rate day. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, City, PNC Financial, Morgan Stanley, all showing some signs of weakness, except Morgan Stanley up one-tenth of 1%. And then to cap things off, check out what's happening with big technology stocks. Always a little bit interest rate sensitive. Watch Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, all posting gains right now. And NVIDIA is back. Kelly, Tyler, about that $1 trillion market cap mark. I'll send things back over to you. 416 hangs on to the four-handle Dom Banks. We're minutes away from the Fed's decision on rates today. We've heard from some key lawmakers. What are markets pricing in? Our next guest says both investors and policymakers have to adjust to a new framework, and they still have not. Dan Clifton is here. He's partner and head of policy research at Strategus, a Baird company. Dan, welcome. Um, is this your reference to the 1980s, or what's the new framework? It is. I mean, but new if you just framework, if you just take the three headlines today, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, the Ukraine-Israel aid, and the Fed decision. They're all interlinked. And the reason is that once the Berlin Wall went down, the framework changed here in Washington. Low inflation, low interest rates, low interest rates, low debt servicing costs, less geopolitical volatility. All of that is being thrown out the window right now. And the dividend that we receive from the Berlin Wall falling is now starting to reserve itself, reverse itself. So now we got high inflation, higher interest rates, higher debt servicing costs, more austerity. And the people who don't like America are challenging us geopolitically and trying to stress us out while our budget is strained. And so that's why you see these big squabbles going on. How should we fund Israel? Should we pay for it? And you know what? We have borrowing advice, Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee funding today, uh, borrowing estimates. It doesn't include $100 billion for Ukraine and Israel. No, but you know what's so interesting as those about this? So come in, we're going to have to adjust. I, I think that's so well said. But one of the interesting wrinkles in this is the reason why Treasury wants this higher than normal cash balance is yeah. also because of the government shutdowns and the debt ceiling. Yes. So, it, you know, it's not, it's, it's because of the deficit, but it's also because because they need higher reserves than they once did. If we could get to this idea of no more shutdowns yes. and no more debt ceiling yes. fights, they might be able to reduce that yes. and actually take some pressure off of the market right yeah. now. And I would add to that, though. If we have a geopolitical crisis, I want that cushion there. If yeah, we have absolutely. a COVID-like event, we need that cushion there. So it's more than just government shutdowns and debt ceiling. They should have a cushion. The question is, though, um, should we be running $2 trillion deficits with a 3.5% unemployment rate? The federal spending is 24% of GDP. we got to see that come down because we'll never have enough tax revenues to be able to meet that. And so that's the challenge for us. And so for 25 years, we've been able to cut taxes, increase spending. Everybody was happy. And now we're starting to have the debate. Yeah. The candy has to be offset with the spinach. And it's really hard to do politically. And that's the 
fight we're having, and we call this budget trench warfare. But you know what? The House is going to pass a bill. The Senate then has the option to do what they want to do. And then they got to sit in a room and get, get together. That's the way we've always done it. And there's this fear this morning about, oh, the House is going to do this, and we're all over the place. We will get this done. We will get it done. It won't be easy. It will actually be quite ugly. But I do think we'll get most of this done. Likely there will be a government shutdown in the middle of the month. So I'm, I'm at a consensus on this. I don't think there will be a government shutdown on November 17th. We just had a House of Representatives shut down for 22 days. That was our show. So now we're going to go out and we're going to say, do we extend continuing resolution? We're going to have a debate about whether it's December, January or April. If the Republicans are unified in the House, they'll be able to kick it out to April. They'll be able to line it up to the sequestration spending cuts. It's a big if, though, because for some of them, this fight over the speaker was itself a fight over these constant CRs instead of the ability to go through all the bills one by one. Exactly. But they need time to be able to pass those appropriations. So they want to build in time. They don't want to be jammed up. But over the last 36 hours, there's been this view building. We're going to waste so much political capital, the new speaker's political capital, on Israel, Ukraine, border security, that by the time that's done, then you've got to get to the CR. And it's going to be tough. So that's why I say we're entering budget trench warfare. Each fight in itself is going to be a fight. And we got to just kind of resolve and work through this. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Great. Dan Clifton, we appreciate your time Thank today. you for having me. Thanks Clay. for coming on. We're about 10, less than 10 minutes, just seven or so minutes away from the Fed decision. Chair Powell's past press conference is after that, beginning at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, that's sometimes even more consequential to market. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.